You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Angie from All Creatures Podcast. Chris and I recently covered The Bush Dog in episode 292, which is one of the world's most elusive canids that lives in South America. Not much is known about these bush dogs because they're so secretive. But as we talked about on the podcast, there is one scientist and her team that stood out for her work to unravel some of the bush dog's mysteries and to help conserve this threatened species. So we were able to connect with these bush dog scientists and they agreed to come on the podcast and tell us all about their work to save the bush dog. So I'm really excited to introduce both Alice Clark and Dr. Karen DiMatteo to tell us all about the secret lives of bush dogs. Yay! Hello, Karen. <laughs> Hello, Alice. Are you there? We Hi. are. Thank you. Yes. And I'm so in love with the bush dog. I didn't want just one expert. I wanted two. So we're going <laughs> to we're gonna hear all, we're going to learn everything there is to know and unravel some of these mysteries. And I, I, I just know that my audience will fall in love with bush dogs the way that I did as I was learning about them in the past couple months. So thank you so much for being here. Thank uh, you for having us. Yes. Thank you for the invite. Now, before we get started, I was wondering if you could each just uh, take a little time to introduce yourself and let us know what your background is. Uh, Karen, if you wanted to go first. Uh, sure. So I am currently based at uh, mostly Washington University in St. Louis, uh, where I teach uh, several different GIS courses, spatial and modeling. I use it a lot in my research. Um, and then I also work in a lab there where I can process genetic samples. Uh I also have multiple different affiliations with the Wild Care Institute at the St. Louis Zoo. They help a lot uh, with my research. And then also several different institutions in Misiones, Argentina, where I'm based. So I'm based in St. Louis, been here a long time, uh, St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, but I also have a lot of close ties to New England, where I call home also. <laughs> Yes, we go to New England a lot. My husband's from there. So yeah, it's a beautiful part of the world, especially this time of year. It is. Uh, it is. And now, Alice, can you give us a little bit of your background? Um, so I'm a researcher from the UK. I'm actually from Scotland, and I'm with the University of Liverpool at the moment. And I studied zoology at the University of Glasgow for my undergrad and my master's. And then I worked as a researcher and a lab technician at Chester Zoo. And now I'm doing my PhD, both with Chester Zoo and the University of Liverpool. Um, and I have a bit of a strange accent because I used to live in the US. I lived in New England, actually, coincidentally. Um, uh, but I am, yeah, I'm, I'm Scottish. Um, but I connected up with Karen um, a few months back earlier this year because she's also a bush dog researcher and then started working with her on the project recently. And now, Alice, did you always want to work with wildlife? Because it seems like you've definitely done a lot of really cool things so far, and you're working on getting your PhD in wildlife. And so has it been a lifelong passion, or did you just stumble into it? Absolutely. I've always wanted to work with wildlife. I pretty much grew up watching Animal Planet nonstop. I was a bit of a, a Steve Irwin kid. So um, yeah, it's always been a passion of mine. So now being able to actually make it a, a career is just fantastic, really. 
And how about you, Karen? Were you a lifelong animal lover as well? Definitely animal lover. I would say I, I started with dogs, uh, probably like most kids, always wanting to be the pre-vet. I was going to be a veterinarian. Uh, and when I did my undergrad at University of Connecticut, I got to explore so much other stuff. And I switched from like pre-vet to, oh, we're going to work with marine biology and mammals. And that's really cool to, okay, let's just do wildlife. So I had just no idea how big wildlife could be uh, until I started to explore it. So always along those lines, without a doubt. Yeah, I agree. I'm just, I was an animal kid too. And I thought I wanted to do pre-vet. And then I realized there's this whole other world out there because when I was touring around with my veterinarian, trying to get my hours, log my hours, I realized that I I, I cry and I faint a lot. So I, <laughs> it wasn't... <laughs> That wasn't going to be the best career for me. Uh, I'd be crying and fainting, and I don't—I didn't think my clients would want that. But I still wanted to work with animals, and obviously, uh, his—I have a whole career based in it, and teach courses about it, and can do this awesome podcast. So it is fun to explore all the different careers and all the different species. And I guess that's why it's so fascinating to me that both of you, uh, with with your vast background in animal and zoology and wildlife sciences, that you end up with the bush dog, uh, because it is so rare and secretive. And so I'm wondering if you have like a favorite animal interaction story or, uh, or something that sparked your interest in studying these wild dogs. Uh, Alice, if you want to go ahead and answer first. So basically I, uh, grew up with dogs, domestic dogs, and they've just always been such an incredible animal to me. Um, but I didn't originally start out um, focusing on mammals. When I was doing my undergrad, um, I was more of an ornithologist, so I really loved birds. Um, and my interest in mammals grew through doing um, fieldwork expedition where I was going out to study birds, but there also happens to be these mammal species um, that were just incredible. So that was actually in Bolivia. So that introduced me to South American wildlife. Um, and one of the most interesting species I thought there was the maned wolf. Um, and maned wolves are just fantastic. They're such a, like a morphologically distinct uh, canid species uh, that live in the grasslands of South America. They have these really long, stilty legs and they're yeah, leg, legs for days, legs yeah, for days. Yeah, exactly. Um, and when I was in Bolivia, I just had, I had a few encounters with just some larger mammal species in general, um, but I never did get to see a bush dog. But as you know, they're so elusive. It wasn't really all that likely. <laughs> um, but yeah, the opportunity to work with bush dogs specifically came up because it was one of the mammal species that we had at Chester Zoo, where I'm based. Um, and I just thought they were really fascinating little creatures, as you do too. So, <laughs> Absolutely. And how about you, Karen? How did you end up focusing on such a unique species? Uh, so it ended up it, through um, a connection with uh, one of the people who I worked with at the St. Louis Zoo for years. So between my master's and PhD, I worked at the St. Louis Zoo for a number of years. And that opened the door to, well, I'm looking to do a PhD. I'm looking to do something. And this person, Ingrid Portone, who was one of the people who worked with bush dogs years ago at the National Zoo, was like, I know of a species you should work with. And I was like, what? And they're like, she's like, well, they're not here yet, but you should work with them. I'm like, okay, what? <laughs> and she was like, bush dogs. And I was like, bush dog. 
So I think I've heard of these things. What are they? And she had worked with them for years at National Zoo and they were a bunch coming into the zoo and we could expand that to be able to do some more reproductive physiology behavior, that type of stuff with them. And I was like, all right, that's pretty cool. I could do that. That would be pretty interesting. So that just kind of opened the door to uh, studying bush dogs like in captivity, but then in the field in in multiple different ways. So just that one opportunity kind of opened up a bunch of other doors for me after that. Uh, I love that. And in, and it's such an interesting example, too, because I get a lot of students that come to me and they think that they need to have it all figured out before they even start undergrad or in the middle of undergrad or even in graduate school. And I said, you know, that's why you're here. A lot of it's to explore and and learn what you what you like and what you don't like to do and what's a good fit and what isn't a good fit and what really interests you. And it's okay to not have it all perfectly paved out because the more opportunities you try and the more people you meet, sometimes things like this then come to you and it oh. becomes like a beautiful fit, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's something I always tell my students. So they're like, well, how did you get to where you are? It's like, yeah, it wasn't a direct path. Like, right, you know, right, the exactly. first door yeah. opened and then I pushed the second door open and then that opened another door. And pretty soon it was like, I was in Paraguay. I was in Brazil. I was in Argentina. It was like, yeah, I'm doing all this really cool field work with a dog I didn't know that long ago. So it was like, it just... I always just say when that door opens, even though it's not the perfect one, like take it because you never know what that will lead to. Yes, I love I am case in point. (laughs) I couldn't agree more. I love that. Yeah, exactly. Well, and before we dive a little bit deeper into bush dogs and the conservation and research that you both are doing for them, Alice, I was wondering for our listeners that aren't familiar with this darling dog, if you could give us a little bit of a background on bush dogs, a little bit what they look like, their biology and behavior, uh, and why people uh, that are listening to this podcast, why should they care about bush dogs? Absolutely. So bush dogs are a small forest dwelling canid found in South and Central America, all the way from Costa Rica down to the north of Argentina. So imagine like a brown bear cub crossed with a Jack Russell Terrier. Um, They're about the same body size as a Jack Russell, and they have that similar kind of refined face. But they have pretty uniform brown fur all over and short little rounded ears, just like a bear. I love those ears. Those ears are great. (laughs) They're so beautiful. And they have a a pretty short tail for a canid as well and short little legs. Um, Bush dogs are small, which allows them to move through the dense vegetation of their forest habitat really easily. Um, And their short legs keep them nice and close to the ground. And the short tail is probably an adaptation to not get caught up in the vegetation as well. Um, They're also described as semi-aquatic and they have webbed feet for swimming and for walking on the wet, muddy ground. Bush dogs have even been reported to hunt by chasing their larger prey into the water where other pack members may be waiting. Um, They are carnivores, so they will hunt rodents like agouti and paca, but occasionally larger prey um, like capybara, and they've even been reported to take down a tapir before if they're in a bigger pack. 
And if you think about how they can achieve this, it's because they're a social pack animal. So they live in family groups. Um, they don't like to be separated from one another. And in captivity, at least, they can live in packs of up to 18 is the biggest pack I've known of personally. Um, they love to play both on land and in the water. And they have some pretty complex and advanced modes of communication, both with scent and vocalizations, which you spoke a bit about on the previous episode about bush dogs as well. Um, and one of their most striking behaviors is that they do handstands. So the females will handstand up against a boulder or a tree to mark it with their urine, um, which is one of the things that I've actually been studying is the function of this type of scent communication. Um, often when I talk about bush dogs, I love to compare them to their closest living relative, which is the maned wolf, which I just described a little bit before, because even though they're close relatives, morphologically, they look like pretty much the opposite of one another because they're adapted to different habitats. So we have bush dogs that are adapted to a forest habitat that are um, small and short, and they have a pretty uniform coloration. Whereas the maned wolf, which is adapted to a grassland habitat, stands at about uh, three foot tall at the shoulder. It has long, stilty legs so that it can be high above the tall grass. Um, and as a lone species living in more open land, they have distinct fur colorations that helps them with their visual threat displays. Even the vocalizations of maned wolves and bush dogs are opposite. Wolves who live lone have a vocalization that travels really long distances, whereas bush dogs that are a social pack species have uh, more short traveling vocalizations. And I think for me, the appeal of bush dogs, other than just being such an elusive species, um, is that people just don't know that much about them. And I love finding a species that people don't know that much about and bringing it to light because I think that once people know more about the wildlife that we have in their world, they'll, in our world, they will care more and want to do more to preserve it. Absolutely. And there's just, besides just being darling i don't that's my 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 synopsis of how uh, of what they look like and then a little bit mysterious as you mentioned uh they are a canid species and i was wondering alice if you could comment on any similarities between bush dogs and then our domestic dogs at home because i think that might be something too to help people connect the dots is why we should care about them because well a lot of us live with one of their cousins right Yes. So um, the, the canid group is found worldwide and um, a lot of the canids are pretty far diverged from one another. So all the South American canids evolved um, separately, really. But they do still retain some of these really dog-like qualities. Um, they're really playful, especially the young pups. Um, they do these like bounding play approaches to start playing with one another. Oh, and then cute. they'll often chase each other around. So at the moment at our zoo, we've got a pup who's about seven months old. And then we have another who's a year and a half old now. And they're always chasing each other around the enclosure. Um, and they also, their dominance and submission behaviors are basically the same as a dog. So they will roll over um, to submit and then another dog will kind of stand over the top of them. So if you've ever seen uh, a dog do that before in, in your house, they'll like stand over the head of the other one. You see bush dogs do that too. 
Um, and they are obsessed with sticks. At least the ones in our zoo are. Um, sometimes keepers will like throw a log or a stick like into their big pool so that they can go like as a group to to haul it out of the water. And they'll just sit around chewing chewing on logs and sticks. So they, there are a lot of similarities between them and domestic dogs too. I love that. And you can hear my domestic dog, Rainbow, barking in the background. She approves. And uh, But yeah, Alice, as you're, as you're mentioning, especially those puppies bounding, uh, I'm like, that's, that's the next uh, viral TikTok video. I mean, I definitely watch a lot of like videos with cats and domestic dogs. So you'll have to have the, the zoo put some of those up so we can see their their play behaviors or as you mentioned with a stick, uh, because that would be that would be really cute because I have a very nice visual of what that looks like. And I think it would I think it would go viral pretty quickly. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. <laughs> And now, Karen, I was wondering with all your experience working with bush dogs over the years, if you could comment a little bit on bush dogs and what their current population status is. Is it trending up? Is it down? I I know the IUCN says they're threatened, uh, but how are they doing? How are their numbers doing in the wild? Yeah, so I would say they're they're declining is the common thought across them. Um, they are considered near threatened by IUCN, the global listing. Um, and that's mainly because we don't have enough concrete field data on them to say they're worse or better. So we're kind of stuck in this limbo category. However, there are some populations like Misiones Argentina that actually list them higher regionally. So within Misiones, they are considered endangered. Um, and they also have like the highest levels of protection. So while globally, we don't know a lot about them, and even regionally, we may not know enough about them, there are some higher protections out there for that species. And what are some of the current threats? Yeah, so I would say some of the biggest threats are humans, <laughs> of course, we, we cause problems everywhere. Um, but as they're like continuing to expand from you know Costa Rica to Argentina across this enormous range that bush dogs have, they're definitely changing the habitat. So they're, you know, deforesting areas or converting areas to pastures, moving into those areas where bush dogs used to exist solely or with their other, you know, wild companions, which means that bush dogs are put closer to humans, um, which also means they're put closer to domestic dogs. And one of the problems with that is with, first of all, the loss of habitat, it can mean that bush dogs have less prey, just habitat destruction alone will decrease the prey, but also humans often hunt those prey legally or illegally. Um, And domestic dogs, unfortunately, will wander into forests and prey on those same game species that bush dogs need. Those domestic dogs being close to bush dogs, either in the forest or outside of the forest, are probably the other biggest threat to bush dogs because we know that both from captive and from wild animals that they have a real devastating impact on bush dogs because unfortunately the majority of these dogs living so close to bush dogs are not vaccinated. They're not cared for like we may care for our pet. Um, and so they have, you know, external parasites, internal parasites, viruses like rabies and parvovirus, and all of those things can pass directly to bush dogs. And when they pass to a group of bush dogs, it doesn't pass to one, 
because they have this compulsively social neighbor, you know, nature, it means it passes to the whole group. Um, and that's actually what affected our group in, in Brazil was exactly that a domestic dog coming in contact with our radio collared group, passing mange, just an external parasite that ended up killing the group because it just spread like wildfire to our group. So I would say habitat destruction, domestic dogs, and then that loss of prey is just a, a cascade effect. We don't truly know the effects of all of those because we don't know enough, but we know that each one of those individually can affect them. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's always a lot of issues when the domestic dogs can come into a wild dog population. I know when I was at the zoo in Chicago, they had a, a really interesting campaign over in um, Kenya, I believe, to actually vaccinate their mm -hmm. domestic dogs that were, I mean, uncared, they didn't have homes, they were kind of like street dogs, to help vaccinate those dogs. So when they do encounter wild dogs, that they would at least be vaccinated for mm -hmm. at least maybe potentially knock down a few of the threats, but not not all of them. So I thought yeah. that was a uh, definitely an interesting campaign that I know had a lot of support. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, it is, it's hard with all these zoonotic diseases and then humans and uh, we're definitely, we're definitely glad that uh, Bush Dogs have you and your team uh, fighting for them. <laughs> and and so, Alice, uh, speaking of Bush Dogs and, and research and trying to learn more about their behavior, I was wondering if you could touch on a little bit of what an average day looks like for you in the field when you're uh, studying Bush Dogs and, and what you're trying to learn about them with your research. And then also, I know uh, back home in the UK at your university, uh, you do a lot of zoo-based research, so if you could touch on that too, so we we, we know a, a day or a month in the life of Alice. Yeah, definitely. Um, so for my PhD, I focus more on the captive side of bush dogs. Um, we research them in captivity so that we can better understand them in the wild as well. And currently I'm researching reproductive and social behavior of bush dogs and how we can best manage it to improve their reproductive success in captivity um, because it's highly variable and canids are generally difficult to contracept and to control their breeding as well. Um, so to start with the zoo stuff, a typical day in my life in the zoo um, would be doing my behavior observations of the pack that I have, but also um, talking to keepers um, and the bush dog coordinators in other countries. So I'm working with zoos all across the world, but mainly in Europe um, to gather more data on how um, reproductive success and litter survival can be linked to things like social group comp composition, husbandry, disturbances, and use of contraceptives. So I spend honestly a lot of time at my desk when I'm at home um, or just doing behavior observations of the pack. And then when I was out in the field working with Karen, I was there for, um, I was in Argentina for five weeks. So we did three weeks in the field and I was working with her team of Proyecto Zoro Pitoco, which is Karen, um, Orlando and Delfina is the core team. And we would go out to do uh, survey transacts each day with DJ, the dog, um, who's trained to detect scat samples from a variety of predator species, which includes the bush dog, and then also their prey species as well. So we would go out into the forest um, and let DJ um, 
sort of scan the area to detect samples. And whenever we found a sample, we would pick it up and mark the GPS point and take a swab so that we can take it back to the lab for DNA analysis. So after a few weeks of doing that, we went back to the lab, which is in Posadas um, in Argentina, and we were doing DNA extraction and PCR to try and isolate the fragments of DNA that can tell you what species each of the samples is from. And then you can go down to the level of the sex of the animal. And depending on how good the quality of the DNA is, the individual. So my days are different depending where I am, really. But at the moment, I'm in my final year of my PhD. So there's a lot of writing. Oh, congratulations. (laughs) Don't quit now. I know you might want to, but just stick with it. I promise it's worth it. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of a lot of writing and looking at the data. Um, I've collected data um, from around thirty zoos w- worldwide so far about their past ten years of breeding bush dogs. Um, so it's a lot to sift through, and then I have all my behavioral data as well to look at. So, you know, a scientist stress, job is stress, 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 stress. You're being you're being very nice about it. I'm a, I, I made it to the other side, so now I, now I can say it's very very hard. <laughs> I'm very proud that you've come this far. Don't give up. Uh, and Thank yes, you. I remember walking by like coffee shops and being like, they're hiring. I could, I could just go there. I could just, I could just <laughs> do you know that. What? I think everyone in the final stages of their PhD has this fantasy about like opening a bakery or becoming yes. a Yes. Yes. I'll just, I'll just be a dog walker. I love dogs. I love walking outside, you know, so, but no, keep it up, girl. I'm super proud of you. And the work is just really, really important and critical. And I think it's going to come together nicely and you're help, you're going to help these dogs and tell their story and it's, it's hang in there. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll definitely talk in a year when you're on the other side of it. Though, too, so. <laughs> yeah. I think that honestly, what, what keeps me going, like, is I do just love these animals so much. And yes. I think that if I wasn't that passionate about the species that I was studying, it would be a lot harder to keep the motivation to to plot along. But honestly, it's I just want to find out all that I can about them. So that's the motivation to go through all this data. You know, it's like I need answers. Yes. Well, Alice, we applaud you. And I actually just got goosebumps because that is exactly <laughs> how you get through your PhD when you know when you're studying something that you you really love and you want and you want to help and find answers. And a lot of times. The answers lead to more questions, uh, but that's that's all part of it. So, uh, yeah, we definitely appreciate your work. And Alice, you touched on it a little bit uh, in your in the last answer, but I wanted I wanted Karen to talk to us a little bit more about uh, this conservation organization called Proyecto Zorro. Oh, let me try that again. Hold on, hold on. I got it. I got it. I got it. I, uh, I, I took a lot of Spanish in high school. You can't tell. You're but, close. Uh, you're close. Proyecto Zorro Pitoco. Very close. close. We would okay. say Proyecto Zorro Pitoco with a J oh, versus a, the Y. The Y. Oh, Proyecto Zorro Pitoco. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, technically, it. it's technically the Bush Dog Project. <laughs> Literally, I love that. the translation. <laughs> so... Well, I love that. Yes. Well, the Bush Dog Project, uh, what is uh, what is the mission? Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah. So uh, the Bush Dog Project started back in 2007 um, with me having the crazy idea of, well, we should try conservation detection dogs to study bush dogs because they're so hard to do with all these other techniques. 
which led to a connection in Argentina in a weird way through captive bush dogs and me looking for scat. So this weird connection came around years later and we ended up in Misiones just seeing whether or not dogs could study bush dogs. Um, and so what grew as a pilot project in 2007 is now this, we call it this multi-pronged project because it's got more arms than we know what to do with, but it keeps growing um, with this goal to understand the species that exist within this habitat and protect them. And the way we're doing that is we started with just the bush dog, but then as Alice mentioned, we expanded because the bush dog doesn't live by itself. Um, and interestingly, even though it's very, very small, it actually requires an area of home range. The size of the area it actually needs is actually more equal to a jaguar or a puma than a small cat species. So they've got these incredible demands on their habitat that they need to survive, especially with large groups. And so we expanded to include beyond the bush dog, jaguars, pumas, ocelots, and then the southern tiger cat. And as time grew on, we also knew, okay, well, carnivores don't exist in a vacuum. They need to eat something. So let's include their prey. So we included things like taper, two species of peccary, paca, and agouti. And so we took all this information that a detection dog allows us to collect because before our study, the majority of things were done with camera traps. Nothing wrong with camera traps, but with bush dogs, camera traps don't work. So we needed other techniques and detection dogs allow us to not just survey really big areas really effectively, but search for all 10 species at the same time without having to repeat things. So Basically, every other summer or so, we spend almost four months in the field, three to four months in the field, collecting data on all these different species, coming back to the lab, processing them for species, individual insects, and then doing GIS modeling that allows us to look at, you know, okay, this is where the bush dog exists, the jaguar, the taper, all these different species. These are how they're similar. This is how they're different. This is where they're really close to humans. These are the habitats they prefer. And we can kind of design like the best areas. And as the project grew, it became obvious that we could use this data we were collecting to not just conserve the species, but also the habitat they depended on. And so Misiones is pretty unique. It's got this enormous remnant of what's called interior Atlantic forest, which I typically describe as most people know a New England forest, which is Atlantic forest, and then just throw a bunch more bamboo and vines in it and make it a lot more denser and you got interior Atlantic forest. And that's what's in Misiones. And so our goal was to actually protect this forest, which the government said was protected back in 1999, but was never really protected on the ground. And so we're using dogs and genetics and GIS and all these other things to try to make this green corridor a reality, which would mean bush dogs and everything they depend on would be protected in that same thing. So kind of what grew as this tiny little thing became this massive project that works with the landowners that live in the region, the you know, anti-poaching patrols that are in that region, training lots of students and volunteers to basically use these techniques there and as well as take them to other places in the world. So it, it kind of became this big thing of like, 
yes, we're doing this for bush dogs within Misiones, but hopefully it can then expand to other regions where bush dogs are also occurring or just other species are occurring in general. Well, Karen, it's like you were talking earlier, like when one door opens, you, you go into it and then that leads to maybe another door or two or arm of uh, the Bush 20. Dog Project, <laughs> or 20, and then you go into it. And so, yeah, I'm sure if, you know, 20 years ago, if you asked yourself that this was, if this was a project you were going to be spending a lot of time on, you may have said no, because it took all those doors to get there. And so I just think it's really inspirational of how just letting opportunities unfold and then taking risks and then doing it and how something can grow from, as you mentioned, just bush dog conservation to this huge umbrella of species and land uh, and people that you are working to conserve. So that that's just really incredible. Um, and so well, it's definitely I do... not done in a vacuum. <laughs> no, lots of, lots of people helping us. But like you said, that is exactly that. What started as one, if you asked me 20 years ago, would we be here? Even some of my funding agencies have asked, like, do you think you'd be here like 10 years later? It's like, oh, oh no way would I be here? Like, yeah. we just focused on bush dogs. And now we're like this whole other thing of what bush dogs at the center, but so much bigger because it's like their whole ecosystem that we're trying to protect. Yeah. Well, and that's what I'm learning too on the podcast is nothing exists in a vacuum. Nothing is black and white. It definitely takes a village, an international community to help protect these species and these lands. Uh, and so I know you have a lot of formal partners, whether they're uh, zoological institutions and international uh, federal institutions, but I want to focus on one of your main partners that help you accomplish your mission. And that would be the dogs the domestic dog. Um, I know you've had a couple throughout your tenure with this project. These dogs help you find the scat and then you collect it to process it back in the lab. Mm -hmm. So I was hoping you could uh, touch on how much scat they're trained to find and how they're actually able to uh, find it, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, we've had several dogs through the project. Um, a couple of dogs were, have been based down there also. Um, I would say that the the first thing we start with is I've worked with a lot with um, a group pack leader detection dogs out in Washington state who got me into this and trained me on this. Um, and through them, most of our dogs have always been rescue dogs, which are great because we typically, they're a couple of years old. They're typically abandoned because they're extremely high energy, not a good pet, like totally psycho. Well, that's a perfect field dog uh, to be able to take to the field. And so these dogs are trained to essentially work like narcotic dogs, uh, but we change the odor. They're not finding drugs or bombs. They're finding our scat, our poop from our different species. So when we train them, we train them so they have this passive response. We don't want them to touch it or pick it up or carry it to you or lick it or do a lot of barking or a lot of pawing at the sample. No touch is our big rule for at least the sample. Uh, and then also those dogs can't chase wildlife. They can't, you know, be distracted by other things. They have to have that internal drive for what we say is to play with their ball or play with their toy. So they're play driven and they will walk, you know, kilometers and kilometers and kilometers to find this poop scat in order to play with their ball. And that is just a big game to them. So our goal is to maintain it as a game. And that game allows us to be able to cover lots of areas really quick 
And the dogs are trained to find whatever sense you tell them to. So our dogs are usually started with like the rarest species, bush dogs. <laughs> That's one of the first odors we show them. And then we pile the other odors on and then show maybe some similar odors we don't want, but maybe in the area. So in DJ's case, who just came back from Argentina, he got trained on these 10 different species. And for him, he's not going to tell us, this is a bush dog, this is a jaguar, this is an ocelot. We wish we always could train that. I wish I could be like, lift your right paw if it's a jaguar, <laughs> your left paw if it's a bush dog. But unfortunately, we haven't gotten there yet. But we can take the samples, especially if they're good samples, uh, meaning that the outside is intact, that DNA that comes from those the intestines of that predator or prey are intact. We can swab that DNA like Alice talked about, take that back to the lab, and that will allow us to find out, you know, what species, how many individuals, and the sex of those individuals. So we can just open up a whole different set of doors because we're not able, we're not going around looking with our eyes. We're we're letting the dog go, and the dog's natural behavior is to roam, and we encourage him to roam. Um, he's not in, in our case. He's not working on a leash unless he's right next to a road. He's he's off a lead. Uh, we always have visual. Um, contact with him, I can usually hear or see him because he wears a bell. So I can at least hear him if he's far away. And he always knows commands. So if I can't see him, which happened, Alice knows several times in the field, you know, DJ would go to a sample way back in the bamboo and I'd lose him because I couldn't see him in the bamboo. Even though he wears orange, I couldn't see him. And I'd be like, DJ, DJ, and he'd be so quiet because he's holding the position like I'm waiting because if you come, I get my ball. I'm going to stay. And so I'd actually have to like call him off the sample. And then I'd be like, oh, I hear your bell. OK, wait, 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 I'm coming. I'm coming. And he'd be like, OK, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. And so they just are incredibly play motivated. They just wait for that ball. And it just allows us to cover lots of areas. So it doesn't matter if we're in a forest or outside of a forest. And so in Argentina, camera traps aren't very effective outside of forest because they tend to disappear a lot. So, you know, they can be locked and all that type of stuff, but there's no guarantee outside of a protected area. And dogs, yeah, especially my other dog, Train and, and DJ, people always wanted to steal them because they're like, that's one good looking dog. It's like, yep, it's mine. You're not taking my dog. So they may want to steal my dog, but they can't take it. So we can work across these different habitats, close to dogs, domestic dogs, close to humans. It doesn't matter for the dog, the nose is down, the search is on. And that's the game of the day. <laughs> so incredible. Wow. And so does DJ come to you trained or pre-trained or, and, and then you focus on just the certain sense of bush dog and then jaguar or, or as you move down, or do you do all the training yourself? So both DJ as well as the previous dog, uh, Train, had been trained, I'm stuttering, had been uh, trained on different samples. So they we knew essentially with uh, Train when he came to the project in 2009 and DJ that they wouldn't urine mark on a bush dog. Um, so not all domestic dogs will actually search for a carnivore because that's essentially like, you know, a, <laughs> you might eat me kind of thing. Sure. Um, and so, or they have that natural canine behavior if they want to pee on it. And so right. both of those aren't allowed. Like you have to find the sample. You can't be afraid of it. And then you can't mm -hmm. pee on it. Cause I don't want your DNA. I want the 
DNA of the sample. Right, right. Um, and so the first thing we did with both Train and DJ was just make sure, okay, you don't pee on the sample. Train got most of his training down in Argentina. We ran a couple of weeks with him, exposed him to all the samples, and then he was ready to hit the ground running because I had experience at that point. And then DJ, I was fortunate enough that he had gotten some preliminary training in Washington State. And then I had the opportunity to work him in Nebraska on a mountain lion cougar project, which let me see the second part. Will you work in an open field situation? Are you able to not chase wildlife? Like, what do you look like? And just see him out a little bit more. He was a success at that project, which meant he got to go to Argentina, add more odors to his repertoire of of odors and be able to work there. So DJ, I actually did all the field training in Nebraska, as well as in Argentina and train. I helped with his field training and then continued it as we added more species to his repertoire over the years it grew. So um, I've been able to get both sides being trained, working with training courses, and then conducting my own training courses to train people. So it's been fun to see the whole the whole repertoire of it. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And and Karen, really quick, when you guys are out in the field, like if it's a field day recently, you just got back from Argentina with DJ, is it like you might find a pile of scat? Oh, there's my rainbow girl. <laughs> Good timing. <laughs> Says talk well, about me. Talk about I, well. Me. She she is very energetic, so she would actually probably uh, fit the bill. Although she has a high prey drive, so that would have to be trained out of yeah, her. Yeah, that would be um, hard. Yeah. Yes, yes. Hold on one second. Let me see. If, okay, I think we might be good. We might be good. She'll let us know. Um, I should whisper. How often does DJ <laughs> there? There, she couldn't hear me. Uh, is it like he finds a sample once a day and it's like, yes, like, wow. Or is it like a couple piles a day or does it just totally depend? Totally depends. Uh, so it depends, you know, sometimes if we're in really dense habitat away from maybe poaching or humans, you might find a lot of samples and other days you may walk all day and find very few samples. Um, so in either case, one of the things with these dogs is we always carry samples with us. So they always get to play during the day. That's how they're working. And so these dogs, just like us, will lose motivation over the day. Like, okay, we're not finding anything. What do you want me to do? And so you have to, they know it's your sample. They know it's the same sample they worked with training or whatever, but it's still a time to play. Um, and so there may be days we you know, walk very few miles because we're collecting samples all the time, in which case we don't cover a lot of area. And other days we may cover a ton of miles because we don't find anything. And so sometimes it, you know, how much we cover will depend on how many samples we find, uh, how tough the terrain is, but DJ will, you know, sometimes find a lot and sometimes find none. I would say when they are not finding none, that's when you're like, oh, look at this tiny little sample that only exists like it's a little tiny piece of hair that used to be a sample like two years ago. But here it is. And it's like, and oops, okay, it's right. It's right it's by my right foot. There. Like, oops, I got to identify it. Normally I would pass it. But oh, this looks so good. You should collect this. And it's like, OK, yeah, you're desperate. <laughs> so. But they, you know, they, it's all a game. So yeah, the day to day completely varies. You know, we always are like, oh, your backpack's getting heavier and mine is getting lighter because we're taking supplies to collect it out of mine. And 
putting the collected samples in another, that's like, woohoo, that's a good day. Um, yeah, you know, every that. day we, even we always say negative data is still data. Like, okay, there's sure. nothing here that tells right. us there's nothing here. That's I love issue. that. So it's very important. Uh, it's still mm-hmm. important to collect that data. Absolutely. Absolutely. And most of the listeners out there know that I have worked a lot with feces in my own research. I love feces, all things feces. And so the feces, the poop, the scat uh, can tell us so much. And um, I was wondering, Alice, if you would be willing to touch on a little bit about uh, what you learn in your work at the zoo from feces and how you're working with it and how it's helping the species that you're studying. Yeah. So as you say, there's a huge variety of research that can be done just using scat samples. You can do DNA analysis like they're doing in Argentina. You can also look at the gut microbiome. You can look at parasite transmission and you can look at hormones, which is what I've been specialized in. So when I started working in the lab at Chester Zoo, um, I was an intern in their conservation physiology lab, which is basically just wildlife endocrinology, looking at the hormone levels of the different animals in the zoo. And you can do this with um, birds, mammals and reptiles. Um, And it tells you a lot about their reproductive health, if they might have any reproductive pathologies you need to be aware of. And you can also see things like when an animal's most likely to be in estrus or when they're pregnant. So during my master's research, I worked on developing a a tool to non-invasively detect pregnancies in a variety of equine species. So it was Grevy, Zebra, Shavalski's. My favorite. (laughs) Uh, Grevy's. Yes. We'll have to talk about. I haven't on the podcast. We've been doing this now for like four years and I have not covered zebras because I think it's the Grevy's is my number one. I worked with them for years at the zoo. And I'm like, I think that's going to be like the last episode. Like we're done. I'm like, I'm like saving the best for last. I want to get all the Grevy's researchers out there. And so anyways, a little sidebar. Now I'll put you on the list for that. Okay. But uh, (laughs) well, I can, I mean, I can tell you, uh, give me some of their poop and I can tell you if they're pregnant. That's that's an important, well, they're, they're endangered. So that's a really important skill set to have for sure. So, um, yeah, so what I also did, so after I finished my master's, I worked back at the zoo for another year as like an independent researcher. And what I was doing was I was um, helping to refine and develop the methods that they used to um, test the reproductive health of female um, African elephants, uh, black rhino and grevy zebra and a few giraffe species for use in the field. Um, So at Lewa Wildlife Conservancy in Kenya, they were um, building a veterinary diagnostics lab. And one of the things that they wanted to do was have some robust methods to do hormone assays um, in conditions where you don't have as much control over the climate um, as you would in lab, like in the UK or in the US, for example. Um, so what we were focusing on mainly was being able to monitor things like, is this black rhino that's in this reserve pregnant and does because that could make them more susceptible to things like poaching or or predation because they have limited mobility um and also just to know what's going on with the animals that you're trying to manage within a reserve so as well as helping you know more about animals in captivity it really can be applied in the field yeah it translates nicely exactly Um, And then uh, a good friend of mine for her PhD work, she's um, collecting fecal samples in Kenya as well um, from a variety of uh, 
hoofstock species. So she's looking at the parasite transmission between livestock and wild hoofstock. And because, like Kara mentioned before, domestic animals transmit diseases to wild animals all the time. And as humans are starting to encroach more on these habitats, you get a lot more of that uh, li- uh, domestic and wildlife interface. So yeah, collecting poo can tell you a, a huge, a huge variety of things. It's, yes. it's very useful. People, I mean, love it's poo. underrated. It's you nailed it. It's definitely underrated. And I'm glad that we're, we're able to get people hopefully, number one, excited about bush dogs. Number two, excited about uh, scat and uh, poop because it is it's very, very helpful in the fields of both uh, wildlife endocrinology, but also um, uh, in uh, captive zoos as well. So we can learn more about those animals and have it translate into the wild to help conserve them. And so uh, now, Alice, I know you're working on your research, so I'll bother you in a year or so about what some of your data has shown us. Uh, but uh, Karen, you've been working on these bush dogs and this pro- uh, bush dog project for years now. So I'm wondering if you can share a little bit over over time of what your data has shown you. What what have we learned about these secretive bush dogs? So. Um- I guess it depends how far back you want to go. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if we look back even um, with our first kind of work in, in Paraguay, looking at them and trying to lure them in using this ever important vocalizations and urine that they have, um, we learned a lot about in terms of they use those vocalizations during, you know, traveling apart from each other, that vocalizations are really important for both short and long distance communication in bush dogs. Um, it can actually be used to lure them in, um, especially we think if individuals are by themselves. We've oh, okay. learned that bush dogs are like across a wide range of habitats. So while they'll be in intact forests, they'll also occur in these uh, grassland shrubland areas like down in Brazil called Sahado. Um, and they occupy those areas also in fragmented areas. So what we learned in Brazil when we were actually able to radio collar a group was if bush dogs are in these semi-fragmented areas, they have really big home ranges. But once you start increasing the amount of fragmentation, they need it even bigger home ranges. Oh, wow. And that's okay. mostly because of the fact they have lower prey. And so especially if you've got this big family group trying to move together, that's going to require more prey. So in Brazil, we would see our group of just four to five individuals consume maybe one armadillo every day, every other day. Um, oh, wow. Which is like, okay, do we need an armadillo introduction program? Because that's a lot of armadillo. (laughs) Um, And so what we've learned, though, was, you know, a lot of species like jaguars and puma are considered territorial. They walk like the same area over and over again. They've got this boundary that they urine mark on. They, They, you know, leave scat on. They patrol in a way. Well, bush dogs are kind of semi-nomadic. They're not truly territorial. They have these areas they use, but then they rotate those areas over time. Um, And so while their home range is equal to about the size of, say, a jaguar and puma, they use it very differently. They use these like small areas where they tend to hunt really intensively 
for a couple of months and then they move to another area. And over time, they'll rotate back to that area. And my thought is, you know, prey has recuperated. They can go back to hunting in that area. Um, They're so hard to study in the wild because you could literally walk over a group of bush dogs and never know it because they spend almost half their day underground. And so they are living in these burrows during the day, becoming mostly active in the morning and at night. And during the day, if they especially have captured a prey, they may bring that prey back into their burrow, eat it, cuddle, sleep, and then at the end of the day, take back off again. Um, And so they're so hard to understand, one, because they're hard to see, And two, they cover these enormous areas at irregular intervals. So it's not like you could put a camera trap in location one because it may be, okay, they spotted them there. Well, it could be six months before they pass back by location one again because they are semi-nomadic. They're moving all over the place and not repeating it like a jaguar, which are easily captured on camera traps. So some of these behaviors are just fascinating. Um, In Argentina, we haven't been able to like physically see them because we're working mostly with their poop. Um, But there have been, you know, these opportunistic sightings that people report of, say, a dozen individuals walking through an area. Um, We have found a lot of samples from family groups uh, within Argentina. And that's because we can test the genetics and be like, oh, these are all really similar. So this is one big family group. So and we found them also expanding into things we didn't know they would excuse uh, use like monocultural plantations, which are like giant pine plantations or eucalyptus that are used for wood or paper or pulp or a variety of things. But they use those and prey use those also. And so things we thought were like, oh, that's bad. They can actually use Um, in the prey. Since the prey is using them, they can they can live there. And so we've learned a lot in terms of like, yeah, there's definitely optimal areas. There are other areas that maybe not as optimal, but that combination of areas works. And Rainbow agrees. (laughs) She does. She's like, I love that approach. That's really helping. Um, But it is is so interesting, like you said, that they can be that flexible and go into areas where you may not necessarily historically think that they would. Um, Mm -hmm. And then is some of this data helping you learn where to protect them or uh, different areas where the government should add protections? Yeah. So in Misiones, Argentina, we've been able to use the data from the bush dogs and then all of these other species to figure out okay, bush dogs like these types of habitats the best of others, and then be able to evaluate outside of legally protected types of habitat, where's the best, most optimal area to protect. And because we focused on multiple species, one of the things that's often designed for protecting wildlife are these wildlife corridors or biological corridors, which identify like this is the best habitat to protect. And what we've been able to do because we paired bush dog with all of these other species that sometimes are really restricted to forest and other times really flexible, we've been able to say, okay, within Misiones, this is like the core area within the northern and central southern zone. We should we should focus on protecting this area. And so within the northern and central zone, we've we've identified an area probably about the size of Rhode Island um, that oh, wow. should be protected, should be conserved. 
And then from there, we're also just expanded this past year into this region we call the Central Southern Zone, which is really the limit probably of bush dogs in many species within Misiones because there's so much habitat fragmentation going on south of that region. Um, but there's still a ton of habitat, a lot of these pine plantations, a lot of native forests mixed into those pine plantations. So we're finding that, okay, these are the limits. These are how close to humans they can exist. These are kind of the optimal areas where lots of species are occurring. These are the areas where maybe we are, are optimally probably pretty good, but we need to either protect those areas because if we lose the habitat, we lose connectivity, or these are the areas that should be really optimal and they're optimal for a couple of species, but they need some restoration to be optimal for the entire system. So we've been going in and being like, okay, now we have this area identified in the Northern Central Zone. First, we need to get landowners to agree to participate because it's sure. 60% of it is privately yeah. owned. You got to have buy-in for sure. Yep. You're not going to purchase that land. It's not going to become a protected area. The people need to protect it. And then going in, working with those people and being like, okay, how can we help you live off the land, but live with wildlife? How can we make, make that balance happen for you? And then also I, within those lands kind of being like, okay, this is like really critical. Can we help with reforestation in this area? Can we uh, do other things of like actually protecting it, creating private reserves where people maintain their forest? It's their forest, but it's a private reserve that, you know, helps them get tax credits and reduce their, sure. their costs mm -hmm. of things. And then also just, you know, identifying um, one of the things we identified through the conservation dog work, as well as work with the park guards in the area was, you know, poaching is a real threat to both carnivores and their prey. And so reinforcing on the ground, the efforts of these park guards that go out and, you know, find poaching and stop poaching. And so most people think of like, okay, yeah, that's done in Africa a lot. And, you know, when I mentioned, well, we need to get bulletproof vests and machete proof vests and night vision goggles and all these things are like in South America. It's like, oh yeah, do you know how much a paca is worth? Like paca meat is like black market meat. Like that is extremely valuable meat on a black market. And so, yeah, the, the, the cost on these animals' heads are extremely high, which means it's not just people from Argentina hunting, it's people from Brazil or Paraguay hunting. So, you know, kind of this multi thing of like working to protect the bush dog through this larger umbrella. And, and we're really fortunate because the Ministry of Ecology has been our partner since day one. Um, and we always share our data with them. It's been a trusted technique down there using conservation detection dogs. We, we could leverage that to form anti-poaching patrols. They now consider it their project, not our project. It's their Excellent. project. Mm -hmm. um, they recognize it as regionally important for conserving their biodiversity, as well as something they presented at the climate change meetings as their way to fight climate change. And so what started as this pilot project and developed all this data to conserve the bush dog has now become much bigger than the poop we started collecting back in 2007. It all comes back to poop. I that love it. Poop I love has it. Such a bigger implication. Yeah. Now it's changing policies and changing the way laws are enacted and that type of thing. So all based on poop uh, I in love the field. It. <laughs>
Wonderful, wonderful. And um, before I let you two ladies go, I just have a couple more questions. And I want to actually direct this one to Alice because she uh, is working on her graduate degree and uh, it is in that intense kind of, am I doing the right thing or how did I get here phase of her career? And I was wondering if she could give um, a little advice to our listeners and students or people, uh, whether it's her first career or second career, have interact interest in wanting to do wildlife conservation and field work. So Alice, any advice for uh, people that love what you're doing? So I would kind of piggyback off of what Karen was saying in the beginning. If there's a door, maybe just go through it. Um, I would say that if you're in the early stages looking at university courses, look at the range of different topics that are covered in the courses that are offered um, and see if there's any opportunities to do field work and lab work because you never really know what you're gonna like until you try it. So I would say try a little bit of everything and see what you're interested in and what you actually enjoy doing on a day-to-day basis. I never had imagined myself Um, incorporating working in a lab for so much of my career um, because I had only imagined myself in the fields before but then I started it and I realized that I actually really loved it and I loved how how you could get data um, from poo mainly what is what I do Um, and I still work in the fields too but I just never really thought that that would be something I would even enjoy but I absolutely love it and it's brought me so many more opportunities and so yeah I would say generally just try a bit of everything and see what sticks um and then if you're maybe further along and you're looking to change careers or incorporate conservation into your own career there's so many different ways to do it you don't necessarily have to be a biologist with a degree in you know zoology conservation biology you can work in conservation through campaigning. Um, You can even just help spread the word about these species that don't receive enough attention because if species aren't that well known, they might not get um, as much research funding um, or general conservation funding. Um, And you can always, you can always try and volunteer your time with projects that you're interested in and um, see, see where that takes you. So I would say there's no like one fixed way to do it. Just start reaching out to people, start getting involved um, and ask people who are already in the career that you think you might want to go into, like, what is this actually like? Um, What can I do to get where you are? And I'm when I honestly, even though I'm doing a PhD now and I'm quite pretty far along academically in, in that sense, Um, I didn't necessarily anticipate when I reached out to Karen randomly to talk about bush dogs that I would end up being able to come out to Argentina and actually work in the field on this project. Um, So you never really know where it's going to lead. So just, yeah. Yeah, it's it's all about, it's a community. And uh, I mean, I always encourage students to to email uh, people that they have questions with and you just never know when there's going to be a right timing to get more involved hands-on, but if you're not able to get involved hands-on, there's several, uh, several ways to what I, what I like to call do conservation from your couch even. And so Karen, that leads to uh, my next question. So Karen, that leads a little bit into my last question as far as with that being said, do you have any advice for our listeners that 
can't necessarily come out to the field or maybe have a different degree or not the ability to uh, study wildlife, uh, how can they help bush dogs? How can somebody from their couch uh, help bush dog, bush dog conservation, um, South American conservation? What's the best way to protect these guys? Yeah, so I would say both in uh, the U.S., Europe, Japan, South America, there's there's always the the zoo angle of side um, and supporting uh, your local zoos, whether they have bush dogs or not. Um, even if they don't necessarily have bush dogs, if they have other projects that indirectly support bush dogs because they occur in a bush dog country, uh, which goes, you know, from Costa Rica to Argentina, you know, maybe they have some type of overlap that you know might conserving this one species or conserving this habitat where your zoo is, you know, maybe funding projects that do that, it would indirectly help the bush dogs on the ground. Um, And, you know, like Alice said, you know, getting involved with the outreach education that could occur at zoos or with universities or on different levels, just, you know, communicating against, you know, about the risks that are facing uh, different species. And, You know, I think one of the things we can always do is, you know, first look at our own backyard and make sure we're conserving our own backyard and then use that as a model to be like, okay, if I'm not doing it, then I can't ask other people to do it. But then, you know, making sure you take that into your communication message about, you know, how can I help zoos in other agencies? And you can always get in contact with researchers or projects. And, you know, if you can't, physically volunteer, maybe you can help in other ways. Maybe it could be processing data or doing, you know, videos or putting compilations together of different informations that they have or some other type of PR for different projects that may be out there. Um, You know, in, in other ways, you can just indirectly, you know, follow and support those people who are out there doing it. And, you know, sometimes just that keep going uh, get you through, like Alice knows now, get you through those tough times when you're like, oh my gosh, why am I doing this? But those little <laughs> support from other people are like, okay, we can keep doing this. So I think there's just so many things, you know, like from the couch, doing it with zoos, with conservation organizations, and think big, think outside of just the bush dog, but think about the habitat, the species they coexist with on so many different levels. If you conserve that big package, that big umbrella, you're going to protect the bush dog at the same time. Absolutely. And I also have to touch on your Facebook group because I it's very famous to me now. And like you mentioned before, Karen, it all started with poop. Uh, and it's all kind of comes together with poop because your Facebook page is called Got Scat, right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> Can you just quickly touch on that and how our listeners uh, can find more information about um, the Bush Dog Project and also see photos of your current uh, domestic dog, detection dog, DJ. And of course, there's wonderful photos too about Train. I've fallen in love with Train on there, who's <laughs> reti- who's currently retired. Um, so yeah, how can our listeners find out more about Got Scat and if, if there's any other websites that would be informational that you could promote? Yeah, so I would say the the two biggest ones we have going are Got Scat, both on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and we use those two platforms to talk about the research that's going on there, post updates on our students, on big things that are happening in the field, any articles we're linked to. 
we also use it to uh, most of our dog, a lot of our dogs work on other projects. So even in Argentina, we've had dogs that work on primate projects outside of our project. Uh, DJ and Train will work in Nebraska doing cougar work also. So we use it to not only follow the project, but follow the dogs uh, on their adventures and their training and keeping them up to date. So both Got Scat, uh, which started, I was like, I don't know what to come up with for a name. And I was like, oh, Got Milk, Got Scat, let's do that. So there we went, Got Scat, Mm -hmm. and and it's been there ever since. Um, I would say we haven't done the big Facebook page, uh, but even through Instagram or Facebook, you can always reach out to myself and I can get back in touch with you via email or phone calls or whatever. And then uh, and that's how I've gotten in contact with a lot of people over the years, uh, people from different countries that have come down and volunteered on the project or just even people at different zoos that have connected with the project to provide funding or just, you know, information to their people, their, their staff and other people. So it's a great way just to connect. And if you have more questions, we're happy to try to help you. And then if there's opportunities in the field you think you can participate in or are interested in participating, we can always explore those uh, definitely, both in Nebraska as well as Argentina. Excellent. And is there an actual website for the Bush Dog Project that uh, our audience can go to, or is it all just through GotScat? It's mostly through GotScat. We've always uh, looked at doing a, a larger page, but uh, usually all of the fieldwork, grant writing, manuscripts, lab work take over priority. <laughs> so well, and, we, and maybe but, maybe there's a person out there that would like to create a Projecto Zoro Pitoco page, get in contact with me. We have got lots of materials uh, that we could definitely put up on that Facebook, uh, that web page. So yes, if you're out there and you've got those skills and the time, we don't have the money, but <laughs> we could maybe find other ways to reward you with uh, Projecto Zoro Pitoco a gear of some kind. So we can we can get you outfitted. As Alice knows, we've got some cool stuff. So. <laughs> Well, that's awesome. And yes, I mean, I've had people reach out to us on the podcast that that's they'd like they'd like to help us through their web design skills uh, because I lack those. Chris is great at it, but time is as both of us being professors, time is a big constraint, as you very well know, and uh, we don't have resources we don't have. So uh, it takes a community, and that's what uh, I hope this podcast is building by talking to experts like yourself. And so, we will. I will help push that on um, our normal podcast. But for any listeners out there, as Alice pointed out, there's several ways to get involved. You don't have to just be out in the field um, hiking through the forest. Uh, you can definitely be at home on your computer, uh, which we all learned that definitely during the pandemic, there was a lot of networking and things we could still do when we weren't necessarily in the lab or in the field. So, uh, but in the meantime, uh, everyone should go t- to Facebook and Instagram and search for Got scat and to help connect with uh, Karen and Alice and the Bush Dog Project and just learning more about the work that they're doing, learning more about Bush Dogs and to help to help show support as well. So I hope that everyone listening will do that. And I want to give a huge shout out to Alice. Uh, thank you so much for coming. I know you're very, very busy finishing up your last year of school and it's just been a pleasure getting to know you and your work on this, uh, on this podcast. And I can't wait to see uh, where you go next and what your work, what some of the results of your uh, dissertation is. So thank you so much for being here. 
Thank you so much for having me. Honestly, it's really fantastic to just talk about bush dogs and talk to <laughs> just talk to you guys. It's been really yes, great. and thank I, you so much. Yeah, and I have to give a, a big shout out to your partner. What's his name? Marvin. Marvin. He uh, he is the one that first listened to the podcast, and he set this whole thing up. So, <laughs> yes, he heard it. He told Alice about it. She reached out to me, and I was like, "Yes, you guys are on my list to try to to try to talk to you, to learn more about bush dogs." I was so impressed with uh, the data that I had been reading online. And so thank you to Marvin and also a huge, huge All Creatures podcast shout out and thank you to Dr. Karen DiMatteo uh, for sharing her work, her lifelong work that just keeps unfolding and growing. And uh, I, I just appreciate your time and your passion and all the hard work you are doing for bush dogs. Uh, that's, uh, it's just it's really incredible. So I thank you for your time and your and uh, all your your passion and your stories coming on the podcast today. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'm always happy to talk about bush dogs. <laughs> so they're definitely a passion and I'm happy to just share it so that maybe other people are interested in them because we definitely need, you know, help to understand this, you know, crazy little species. So anybody and anybody can help on that, I think. It just thank you for the opportunity to talk about these guys once again. <laughs> yes, I want the whole world to know about bush dogs. They're, they're such cool little creatures, and uh, we definitely need to conserve them in their habitat. And uh, Karen, I'll definitely stay in touch with you too, because uh, the Wildlife Institute is one of my dream jobs as well. So if you're if they're ever hiring, uh, let me know because I would love I would love to come there and uh, be part of that team some way somehow. Who knows how doors open, right? Hey, I will keep my ear to the ground and, and put feelers out. Not a problem there. <laughs> yes, yes. I, uh, I I love it over there and everything they're doing for uh, animal conservation in the zoo. It's definitely one of my favorite zoos for sure. Yeah, it's an amazing zoo. Awesome. Well, thank you, ladies. We'll stay in touch. And I appreciate all your time and your love for bush dogs. And uh, uh, thank you so much for sharing them with us today. Awesome. Thank you, Angie. Good to see you, Alice. Bye-bye. Bye.